0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast
1: series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Brexit is back on the agenda and with it the potential for chaos. Simon Coveney says the UK appears set to trigger Article 16. The Taoiseach also says antigen tests will be used in schools to prevent COVID outbreaks. we join joined the studio by the president of the INTO. And the United States opens its borders again to the fully vaccinated tourist.
2: I'm very, very happy. Um, I I had my husband died recently, so this this is a big break.
1: We want to know what you hear about these stories and more. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Good evening. It's been nearly 2,000 days since the UK sent shockwaves around the continent and voted to leave the European Union. Since then, we've been back and forth. Claim and counterclaim as the two sides hammered out a deal that seems to have put a lot of the issues to bed. Not so fast. Brexit is back and the tension is rising again. Over the weekend, Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, said the UK seems set to trigger Article 16 over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Let's discuss this with my panel in studio tonight. I'm joined by Neil Richmond of Fine Gael, Rose Conway-Walsh of Sinn Féin and John Lee, the executive editor of the Daily Mail group Ireland. And hopefully joined in a few minutes as well by the DUP MLA and the Stormont Assembly, Jim Wells. Um, Neil, if I start with you, first of all, um, this seems to have been a long time coming. Is it now genuinely accepted in government circles that this is going to be triggered, whether we like it or not? Um,
3: not necessarily 100%, but certainly there's been an intense amount of sabre-rattling and it's been building up to a point where it's been flagged that this week the UK may take the ret- regrettable decision to invoke Article 16. It'll be a very foolhardy move. It's certainly something there was discussions today between Lord Frost and Commissioner Sefcovic. It should be avoided, it can be avoided, and it's quite clear opinion of everyone in the European Union that the conditions haven't been met for it to be invoked.
1: Why is now the boiling point? If these concerns have been there for so long, if there's been some disruptions with the supply chain, if there's been issues about the jurisdiction of the EC. Why move now and not three or six or nine months ago?
3: That's a question for the British government. Um, they've been using this card for a long time. They published the command paper in July where they identified issues. After that, the European Commission came back and addressed pretty much all those issues, particularly the ones that were impacting businesses and community leaders in Northern Ireland. But it has to be said politics domestically in the UK is very fraught at the moment, and nothing changed the headlines and changed the polls like picking a row at the EU.
1: Is that what all of this is, John Lee? Is this just Boris Johnson and his government playing to a domestic audience where it's not really so much about how Northern Ireland's going to work, but rather just trying to, to bully things up for a potential snap election somewhere down the line?
4: And no matter how kind you want to be to Boris Johnson, you can only suspect that. And O'Neill you know, points out that domestic affairs seem to dominate... Their attitudes on Brexit—they've fallen again in the polls today. A UGO poll has them below Labour for the first time in quite a while. Um, there was some really, really damaging reputational problems for them last week in the in the House of Commons. So did, he needs um, a Falklands moment, then—is that it? Well, when when you observe the British government, you can only um, you can only suspect they're in a state of perpetual warfare when it comes to Brexit. The, the, Boris Johnson was elected to government with a large majority. Um, and it was on one issue, which was Brexit. If Brexit goes away and fighting with the EU and fighting with Ireland and, and being perceived to be tough on it, if that goes away, what has he got? You know, his, um, his image has now been destroyed in the commons and that's what his own party has said. There's a U-turn, There was a backbench, there was a backbench revolt. He has said himself, uh, in the past that his method of negotiation is to throw a dead cat on the t- on the table. That if, if one comes up with something distracting enough, um, uh, you can divert attention away from his real problems. The man, in my eyes, has gotten to where he is in politics by, behave- by behaving like a clown. And there doesn't seem to be any real substance behind what they're doing here beyond COP26 will end this week and uh, one could ex- should expect sabres to be rattled even firmer next week to give Boris Johnson a uh, more credibility with his heartland and the heartland of the Tory party right now seems to be uh, pro-Brexit and anti-EU. That sounds like we should all be tuning in to Andrew Marr on Sunday morning then if you're not already watching R&M
1: on a Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> Rose Conway-Walsh, um, if this all happens, then there's a serious question around the provision of an open border, which was the end goal for all of the negotiations for the last five and a half years or so. If the UK invokes Article 16 and it gets rid of those safeguards to try and avoid that, what should Ireland's next step be?
5: What really really a hard border on the island of Ireland cannot be accountants. I think absolutely everybody agrees on that. It just cannot happen. We have an internationally binding, binding agreement in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, the agreement that was reached, obviously, the protocol is there as an answer to Brexit. And uh, it, it's not ideal, but it, it is working. And particularly with the recent changes, I mean, first it was sausages, then it was Mm. medicines, then it was something else. All of those things have been addressed and the Joint Committee is there for a purpose. That's the mechanism which you sort all these things out and that's why we are asking for the Joint Committee to be reconvened. But if the UK
1: evidently feels that the threshold has been crossed and they probably think this has been the case for a few months now and if they're going to do this as soon as all the diplomats have left Glasgow this coming weekend... And you say, yes, there's a deal there. and Yes, there is a deal there. But if the UK is reneging from the deal or is using the terms of that deal to try and get rid of the safeguards, what do we do next?
5: Well, it just doesn't make any sense that they would do that. And what I would urge them to do would be to sit down and to negotiate. The EU are willing to negotiate. Britain needs to do the same thing. There's an absolute disregard for businesses, for agriculture, for anybody across the north for all citizens across the north and it shows that either the British government couldn't care less or they don't understand what's happening and I think it's probably a combination of both but they have to pull this back from the brink because there cannot be a hard border I mean that's why we have special status but even to hear today um, um Billy Hutchinson you know talk about mm. and he was asked the direct question I listened to it and on talk mm. back so the did they, do they in want to come out of the single market you know do they want to come out of the EU single market and, and he said, yeah, I mean, that doesn't make sense for businesses. All the businesses I talk to across the North well, and in agriculture, they certainly don't uh, want to come out of a, a market with well, 5 million it's people. It's the
1: clash of commerce versus politics, and if that's the stance they want to take, then it might seem nonsensical to many, but that is their stance. And it does lead us then, Neil Richmond, to the question of what do we do next if the Article 16 is to be invoked? Because if this results in the UK deciding that the open border... Procedure can no longer be followed. The European Commission is going to say we have to protect the market some way and if the checks aren't going to be done at sea, the next logical thing is to do those checks at land, at the land entry to the, to the European Union on our border, which is what we haven't wanted to do, but it seems like the only other option.
3: No, and I think we're jumping very, very far in a process that is undetermined. And I think it's really important because you also have a lot of arch-prexiteers and hardcore loyalists who are painting triggering or invoking Article 16 as some sort of panacea that this changes everything or removes the needs from checks. You have to remember that Article 16 is very much part of the protocol. So what happens next depends on why and how the British government trigger Article 16. There's a multitude of ways, and I'm not going to go into all of them, either bringing in the role of the European Court of Justice or certain aspects of the But, it, but it's trade. not a
1: full tearing it up, there's still some scope I mean, for it to be a it. minor it doesn't tear up change. Far from at all.
3: What initially will happen if the British government does invoke Article 16 is it brings on an instant, month-long consultation period and then if that doesn't bring anything out in terms of further negotiations I have no doubt that the European Commission and they already stated they will they will challenge the right of the British government to invoke Article 16 legally mm. that again adds more months to the process and then the, Brit- the European Commission can look at reciprocity so if they've triggered Article 16 and why and now we're getting about 12, 18 so it's months so it, like,
1: it sounds like an awful lot of paper pushing where actually nothing changes really much in the meantime which does make you wonder if this is all electoral saber right. Technically and legally Despite this
3: being painted as some quick, easy win for hardcore unionists and arch-brexiteers, it's not. It's creating a massive bureaucracy and negotiation. Politically, it is an immensely damaging move that will bring relations between the EU and the UK government to the lowest point from the long time. Uh,
1: John Lee, there was a sense when all of this was negotiated that Ireland had somehow managed to get the entire rest of the EU to dance to its tune and that Ireland was able to manipulate the Brussels agenda so that this idea of an open border, which otherwise might not have been a huge priority, was this massive thing... You don't know whether that same sense of loyalty is there right now or you certainly don't get the same sense of everyone wrapping themselves around the flag and other leaders going to bat and bat their chests and say we're going to stand by the Irish. Do you think Ireland will have the same sympathy everywhere else in the EU if it does come to this and there's question marks about how how you safeguard the market?
4: I don't think, you know, I think Ireland took sides with the EU obviously and the EU has sided with it. You know, the row is very much between the EU and Britain. Um, whether, whether the issue is, it focuses on Ireland, but the, the EU has fallen out in, in, in a number of ways. France and Britain are going at it. There, there has been a, a deterioration in relations. But as you, as you say, uh, and as Neil points out, there's a pretty high ceiling for invoking um, aspects of that Article um, mm. 16. Whether anything happens to affect cross-border tra- trade in the near future, uh, we doubt. I don't, I don't certainly get an, get an impression that the EU is stepping away from Ireland in any sense. That It has always come down to this protocol, and that has been the row. Britain has seen it, and the Tory party has seen it as an issue they can use <clears throat> to constantly back, chip away the EU. I don't particularly get the impression they want a resolution, uh, and I don't think they expect one. Um, but they will continue at this for as long as they can, and they don't care. Britain does not particularly seem to care about its relations with the Republic of Ireland. Uh,
1: Let me at this point then bring in uh, Jim Wells, DUP MLA, who's with us on the line. Uh, Jim, I know you've been having some tech trouble, so thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us this evening. Um, We've been discussing in studio that the criteria for meeting Article 16 might have been met three or six or nine months ago. If that is the case, why is it taking so long for the UK to invoke it?
6: Well, that's the question unionists are asking in Northern Ireland. Uh, this is a protocol that basically detaches us from the rest of the United Kingdom. It's costing us £850 million pounds a year. And it's all over the 6% of the goods that come into Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom, which go into the Irish Republic. The simple solution to all of this is to simply uh, make certain that all goods coming into Northern Ireland are stamped for use in Northern Ireland only and that there's a Trusted Trader Status uh, Module for the 6% of goods that go into the Republic. Uh, we don't need any of this. We, it's, it's, it's causing chaos in Northern Ireland, and the reality is that the protocol is poisoned as far as the people of Northern Ireland are concerned, and there's not a single unionist anywhere in Northern Ireland who supports
1: it. What is the chaos in Northern Ireland, Jim? Because I've heard this well, well, being discussed, and this, uh, this idea that there's blockades and people not being able to get deliveries done, and yet you go and look at the supermarket shelves and there doesn't seem to be any supply issues at all.
6: Yes, because we're only seeing the start of the chaos because there's various derogations which have been signed. Once they unravel, we will find that there are many goods, including medicines, of course, which come from the rest of the United Kingdom, which will have to be tested before they get into Northern Ireland. That is totally unacceptable. Already we have problems with plant imports, with with, with difficulties with sausages, with um, the movement of animals. This is all nonsense because, remember, the vast majority of the goods that come into Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom go no further. This is all being done for a tiny proportion of our trade. And that can be dealt otherwise. But, of course, we all know the reason why the protocol has been imposed, because the United Kingdom cannot be allowed to leave the European Union without blood pouring out of its back, without pain. And as an example to the Hungarians and elsewhere, this is what what will happen to you if you leave the european union
1: no jim it's surely the case is that if, if you've decided to leave the european single market that there has to be a customs threshold somewhere and that if you don't got ha- if you don't want to have it at land and no one seems to want to have it on land that it has to be somewhere else
6: but it's only for a tiny amount of goods and you can instigate a trusted trader regime whereby right. those who are bringing in goods will have to be testing the small percentage and then gradually those goods can be brought in via Dunleary or Rosslare rather than via Northern Ireland, and your problem is solved. 94% of the goods that come into Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK go absolutely nowhere. And we're using a sledgehammer to crack a nut in demanding a border down the Irish Sea for a very tiny proportion of our trade.
1: Uh, Jim, one thing which is striking about your your points there, valid as they all might be, is that you haven't mentioned the protocol being any kind of a constitutional threat, and yet there are others in unionism who see the protocol as being the slow chipping off of Northern Ireland from the union. Do you you think that is, or how can you illustrate to an audience here in Dublin how it does that?
6: Well, Well, put it this way, would the people of Donegal tolerate uh, border checks Uh, from goods coming from the rest of of Ireland. No, they wouldn't. They'd oppose it on the basis of trade and also they'd oppose it on the basis that Donegal is constitutionally a part of Ireland, the Irish Republic. Similarly, you can't have a situation where one part of the United Kingdom is being treated so fundamentally different from the rest of the United Kingdom. It's just totally unacceptable and therefore the protocol is only part of the way forward because at the end of the the, article 16, At the end of the day, the protocol has to go. The protocol is a huge danger to the constitutional position of Northern Ireland.
1: OK, Jim Wells, MLA member of the Northern Assembly for the DUP. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Um, Rose conway Watch, you've heard what Jim Wells had to say there about this being a constitutional issue. And one of the regular complaints you get from Unionists is that Dublin is a tin ear to that. That Dublin simply says, "Not nah, your concerns are bogus and dismisses them away and never actually engages with them and, and hears out their concerns and explains them. And
5: well, it'd be no surprise to Jim to hear that I disagree with him. I mean, first in terms of what he's saying around the, the, the checks and all that, we know that the checks have been, been reduced by this reduction of 80% in the SP, SPS funds, and there's been 50% reductions on the others. So I don't. I think they're running out of road there in terms of the huge disruption that, he, that he's causing. Now he says every but single. But he says d-
1: there could be further disruption coming down the line and he's yeah. right, these grace periods for sausages and everything else can't go on yeah, forever. Yeah,
5: I, d- I think they're going to have to look at the grace periods and maybe extend in those. But when he says around the, the constitutional threat that it is and it's threat to all unions, I don't t- take that at all. I think unionists who are secure in their identity, um, often them uh, being, being British or, or whatever they, they want to be, um, I don't think that they have a problem with the protocol. And we see that. We saw it in Pete um, um research that was done over the weekend. There was more research done before mm, that. From the University of and Liverpool, you see that yeah. there's a growing number of people and businesses who, who accept that the protocol gives them the dual market position it's actually of benefit in that sense and there's nothing to be feared constitutionally about it and all of these things can be sorted out under the joint agreement but you would have to question whether they want an agreement at all or whether they want to reach agreement at all or what does success look like uh,
1: for them. Uh, Same point to you John do you think that there is actually some understanding in Dublin of those concerns of unionists who genuinely believe that it is a constitutional issue that the north is being chipped away and that they're not just having it dismissed and saying no it's not that Dublin actually engages with that and listens to them and hears them out
4: well I think there's been nothing but diplomatic language from Dublin even over the weekend you know um, but is there substance
1: behind it is what I mean really
4: I I don't think so you know um, again we go back to Boris Johnson he made commitments to the unionist community I was at the conference in uh, the DUP conference when he was there made commitments to them which he then reneged on when he became Prime Minister Um, again we go back to Boris Johnson you you know we uh, Rose uh, referred to, um, to some research in, in, in Liverpool University, Queen's University mm. did some research and they found that uh, only 4% of people in Northern Ireland, it was pretty extensive research too, trusted the British government. And again, we keep going back to the people who are in charge here when it comes to Northern Ireland and, and foreign affairs issues and it's the British government. John Major <coughs> also came out over the weekend and attacked... Uh, Boris Johnson, he seems to have very few people who agree with his stance on this. The unionist community, one can only determine from uh, in a dispassionate way, are are siding with the Tories on particular issues for political reasons. Politic- politicians do what they do for political reasons. If Jim Wells has those feelings um, about the the Dublin government, we have to, as, as I'm sure it's referred to <laughs> in Northern Ireland sometimes, we have to respect that, but I don't. I don't really see much credibility in that. I think the, the Irish government has done nothing but be diplomatic about this okay. and has, done, has repeated that over the weekend. Uh, Neil, the, the big question for Brussels, if this comes,
1: and you've mentioned the various ways in which it could be triggered or what could, the extent of it could be, is what happens next, and if there isn't cheques at sea, the cheques would have to be on land. Are we absolutely confident that, that Brussels will still have our back and not expect customs officials and revenue officials to start standing on the border?
3: Completely. I've spent more time on the border with officials from the European Union institutions and from other member states than I have with my own family, and my family come from Calvin, and that's why they have a true understanding. Once upon a time, the British government did. But one thing just to go to nail down, Jim mentioned a lot in his opinion piece, but he never mentioned the role of the European Court of Justice, which is what the British government is saying is their main reason for triggering Article 16, which which shows it's a complete red herring, and ultimately the issues he's concerned about have all been a draft by Marcus.
1: Uh, that's Let us know what you think on this. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV, and my thanks to the panel for now. Neil and Rose will be back after the break. We'll be discussing COVID, and the Taoiseach now saying that antigen tests will, after all this time, be used in schools. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, cases of COVID-19 are over 3,000 for the seventh day in a row. And the conversation today turned once again to the role of schools and what can be done to curb the outbreaks there. The Taoiseach says antigen tests will now be used to track cases there.
5: Anybody who's symptomatic in any way in terms of respiratory illness um, should not go to school. Um, And um, that's been consistent now over the last month to six weeks in terms of RSV. Uh, which particular respiratory uh, virus and others uh, oh, and that the same it. issue the same issue has not applied to COVID in respect of children getting severely ill or going to hospital it's RSV and other issues broncholitis and that have proven to be more problematic this year but in terms of the contact tracing the, there will be utilization of antigen in, in in given areas within schools again in line with advice from public health
1: I'm joined once again in studio by Neil Richmond of Finegrail and by Rose conway Walter of Sinn Féin. I'm also joined by Joe McKeown, who's the president of the Irish National Teachers' Organisation. Um, Joe, thank you for coming in. I can only presume if the Taoiseach says that antigen tests are going to be used in schools, that he has already brought you and your fellow INTO members into some room somewhere to explain how it's all going to work.
8: Well, I'm afraid you'll be wrong about that. Uh, I think the, the fact is that uh, when the Minister for Health announced uh, yesterday that he thought antigen tests he might be coming back before Christmas... Principals and teachers once again uh, this morning went into schools not knowing the details, uh, not knowing uh, when it will be introduced, how it will be introduced, who's going to get the antigen tests and what are the plans for communications about the antigen tests. Uh, And that's not the first time this has happened. Um, And I think also too principals and teachers would certainly feel at this point that there doesn't seem to be a realization as to the urgency of the situation. There are 5,300 children Uh, primary school children who have COVID. And 11 of them are in hospital, uh, according to the the last uh, 14 day reports. So that's a very, very serious situation that needs to be addressed. We have the largest unvaccinated group of people in the country. Are in our primary schools, going indoors for five to six hours every day in the largest classes in the European Union, and that is a matter that needs urgent address. Does
1: all of that mean, then, Joe, that you'd support the use of antigen tests, or would you rather go back to the previous status quo of having the full testing and tracing and kids being removed from classrooms?
8: Well, we were very clear ourselves that it was too soon to remove the contact tracing from primary schools, and that should never have happened. Our advice to the government was that should wait until the Halloween break and we'd see how things had developed. So quite clearly we were right on that. But we certainly do think and do support uh, the introduction of antigen testing for primary school children because we all want all children to be in school for as many days as
1: possible. So, it, antigen it's testing too has a role to Having play. antigen tests rather than identifying and removing every other child who might be a close contact.
8: Well, clearly, you identified the close contacts, and the European Centre for Disease Control is very clear that antigen tests do have a role once you have identified the close contacts. But the problem at the moment is we haven't been identifying the close contacts. We've had children who are asymptomatic coming to school, and we have an increase in the numbers of primary school children. Uh, getting COVID, and that's not a satisfactory situation.
1: Uh, Neil, I know public health officials uh, are insistent that schools are only as dangerous as the communities that they're based in, and people will have their own opinions on that, but that, that is their line. Nonetheless, if they are revisiting the whole question of testing or some sort of follow-up in schools, they recognise that something is going wrong. All of that being the case, why wait until after the midterm break, when there was a nice clean break there where you could have taken a week to reorganise yourself, to bring Joe and his colleagues into the room? Why wait so long? Well,
3: it was, but the government were waiting on... Um, the public health advice. They went through it both in terms of the chief medical officer with the Minister of Education, with the Minister of Health, and they had to analyse and make sure they actually had the collective data to make sure that this would work. It's now in a situation that antigen testing will be rolled out. The exact format hasn't been decided upon. When it is, it will be done in discussion with the unions, as it should be. And you're looking at pod systems, you're looking at clusters, because ultimately, infection rates aren't just going up in schools, they're going up nationally, and that is having a But they're wider going up impact.
1: at a higher proportion, of, by a higher percentage in the primary pupil age than they are in any other cohort.
3: Understandably, because the primaries' pupil age aren't vaccinated for understandable reasons, but that's why we can look at the whole societal approach. Antigen testings can work. It was a huge political win to get them On the agenda, they will work and will be implemented in a way that is manageable.
1: Well, there was an important caveat in what the Taoiseach said in that clip that we just aired a moment ago, which is that they're going to be introduced in line with public health. That suggests that they're only going to be used to the extent that NEFIT is happy with them. And we know that although Mark Ferguson, the chief scientific officer, is in favour, that Tony Houlihan has a lot of reservations. So is there actually, in fact, the possibility that they're going to be introduced in line with Tony Houlihan's advice, which is not at all?
3: Well, Nefit is a lot more than Tony Houlihan. There's over 40 members of Nefit, and they are the experts. This isn't a political decision. It's a public health decision. We're criticised as a government ten, nine times out of ten for not following the scientific advice. This is one where we have to get the scientific right and bring in NEFET to make sure it's clear and it's manageable and you it's implementable.
1: Could have followed it seven months ago than when Mark Ferguson brought out his report about antigen testing.
3: Well, As I said, that was one where the government... Kept pushing and we actually had set up the necessary. Kept pushing plan for, report
1: for the f- implementation of a report that it had commissioned. Mark had Ferguson's report has been there for could. seven months.
3: And it was making sure that it was done feasible. We weren't getting the sign off at an effort when we finally had done. It has started to work and has ensured that less people are missing days in the office or having to cocoon or isolate for 14 days. It is working. This is a movable pandemic, the likes of which that haven't happened before. I think when we see where the government has got it right, it'll have to be fair and reflect
1: that. Rose, does Sinn Féin accept the advice of the CMO that schools are not a general source of transmission, that they're only as dangerous as the communities they're based in? No, it is quite obvious, and it was
5: quite obvious last year as well, that there was COVID in schools and that there's an unacceptable amount. Now, we cannot go back to a September situation where there was thousands of children out of school, but I think it's quite shocking to hear from Jim and from the INTO that the government haven't engaged with them even at this stage. I know what, what, uh, what uh, Neil is saying in terms of this being movable, and of course there are variables in it, mm. but there are also certainties in it. And there's certainties when you have a whole cohort of the population going back to a school where we have the largest uh, class sizes in, in Europe, that there is going to be contagion in there. Mm. Uh, there's also that winter was coming up, that you know that there wasn't ventilation in the school. So there's so many things that were certainly, mm. and we've asked for antigen so, so tests that you, that since the beginning So you're saying that you don't accept
1: the CMO or, or an effort's insistence that schools they're only as safe as the communities that they're in? No, but there obviously is COVID in schools. Yeah, and it's that, obviously a the problem is, there, that are, has to be addressed. Are schools a venue of transmission? Because the CMO says they're not.
5: Well, no, I would say that, well, I, I would say that they are. I'm not an expert in it, but when you have very large class sizes, you don't have proper ventilation, you don't have the contact tracing and uh, and you don't have antigen so, testing but within but that car- every, it's very hard to it's very hard to
1: understand. But every other juncture why Sinn Féin has said that it would follow the public health advice and that it yes. doesn't want to play policy, it would follow yeah. the advice. The yeah. advice is that schools are not of any for transmission. You're saying you don't believe
5: it. I said it's hard to accept. It really, is, it really is hard to accept, and that is not... To, and we would obviously follow public health advice, which we have done all the time, but we also Even have, ask, land, the we have, we have also asked... We have also asked, since the beginning of summer last year, we've asked for antigen testing. And I think what the population are wondering, how loud do they have to scream before this government will uh, listen to them? I think it's uh, so obviously the
8: government... John yeah,
5: and, and, and just I think there's two
8: things that are important. First of all, in relation to... Uh, schools and whether they're safe or not. The fact of the matter is that the European Centre for Disease Control, which issued its most recent report on the 28th of October, the very report that has led to the antigen testing brought in, is very clear. It says primary schools are high risk of transmission. That's what it says. Now, it says that those risks can be mitigated, But the fact of the matter is that in this country, they're not mitigated by the size of the the classes because we have the largest in the European Union. Any mitigations we had in relation to contact tracing were removed. And this has very real consequences for principals. And a principal rang me last Saturday, uh, Saturday afternoon. 80 pupils in her school, five children had tested positive, and the parents responsibly had taken their own decision to keep 30 of them at home because they felt it wasn't safe. Four members of staff have since tested positive. So day after day for all of last week, that principal was left watching the cases rising and there was no access to public health advice. Mm. If that principal had had five cases of head lice, she would have had to notify the entire school that there was head lice in the school. But when she had five cases of COVID, no advice to notify anybody of anything and no suggestion as to what to do to reduce transmission. You
1: might have answered what was going to be my next question then, which was, do you accept the CMO's assertion that schools are not a venue for transmission of the virus? Evidently not.
8: Well, I accept what I've read the most recent uh, documentation I get. I don't have any expertise in the area, but the European Centre for Disease Control is very clear. It says primary schools are high risk of transmission and that can be mitigated. The CMO is right about one thing. Mm. Principals and teachers have done a Trojan job in making sure that schools are as safe as they possibly can be. Mm. But the fact of the matter is removing contact tracing and the delay in antigen testing, Mm. which was delayed because of licensing issues back in May and June, and the failure to spell out exactly what's going to happen next is leaving principals once again on their own watching COVID cases rising day by day in the communities they care
1: about. One of the other mitigations is ventilation. And there's big question marks about whether schools are adequately ventilated or whether they've been given adequate advice on ventilation. And of course, we know much more now about COVID being airborne than we did when all the protocols and procedures were introduced. Um, Are you satisfied with whatever the department advice has given you or that there's been enough uh, assistance available to you and your members and to principals to try and ensure that ventilation is proper rather than simply having CO2? Uh,
8: In short, no. I mean, I think... uh, What do you need then? First of all, the the CO2 monitors were recommended and the the department were acting on advice and they provided CO2 monitors to classrooms, to some classrooms, not to all. And that's useful for identifying where there is a problem. Now, what we find interesting is that talking to teachers as as they use those monitors, that even in rooms where the doors and windows are open, that the monitors are still giving very, very high readings. But what hasn't happened is any suggestion to the schools as to what they do if there are frequent, high readings uh, on the CO2 monitors. So it tells you there's a problem,
1: but it doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do to to prevent it. What to do
8: or how to fix it. And there is the short-term fix of uh, air filters, which perhaps could be provided. Mm. Many schools are setting about using their scarce funds to buy those. But in reality... The government needs to say very clearly: ventilation is key. Where there are ventilation problems, here's simple, quick, easy way of installing filters, and here's the funding uh, for it.
1: Neil Richmond, he does have a bit of a point because obviously there's been CO two monitors provided to most, not all schools, most schools and most classrooms now have them. But all they do is diagnose the extent of your problem. They don't help you to prevent that problem.
3: Yeah, and diagnosis is a key part of making sure that we can keep people safe yeah, and address Prevention will be an awful
1: lot better than cure.
3: Yeah, absolutely, but you can't go in from the get-go and say that this is totally safe. You have the monitors to see when the risk is going up and to see when the issues... agree. there and was I a agreed. summer
1: break and there was a midterm break. Yeah, could and I'm going to finish my advice.
3: point. I could finish the point, Gavin, you could interject. And I agree with Joe that there needs to be better guidelines where it is, but also we have to look at where... The real important is is making sure that we keep people safe within those classrooms, to have the monitors working and actually like spread them out much further and that we put the resources in to making that. I've already said it a couple of times in the dog for the level of engagement with schools, but it's not just schools, it's in all sectors, such as returning to the office place. But as the pandemic rises, as the case numbers rise, this will become a bigger issue throughout. But you go back to the vaccination levels that we've seen and the fact is that people are far less risk than they were 12 months ago because of the high uptake across all well, the over 12. The
1: teachers aren't necessarily at far less risk because they're now sharing enclosed environments with mass pools of people. They who are might because be they've
3: been vaccinated, Gavin. The, the, but the they've science got a higher, higher risk of
1: being presented with it because they're being in Being the presented
3: over. with it, but if you're vaccinated, you're at far less risk of either contracting the virus in the first place or becoming yeah. um, much more sick. I think, and I think the, that's really important.
8: But to a certain extent, I think that, that you're, you're missing the point. I mean, first of all, within the school community, we care about all the people in the school community. The fact of the matter is the children are at risk and these are children we work with every day and we care about. That also in turn presents a risk to the whole community, the school community and the wider community, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And unless we address the fact that we need to provide significant support to the place where the largest group of unvaccinated people who are forgotten about Two weeks ago when the the Taoiseach and the Tawnister particularly were referencing dealing with the 300,000 people who are unvaccinated because they choose not to get vaccinated, Mm. there was no mention of the 500,000 who were sitting in the primary schools. But again, if we
3: rely on the medical advice, the people who are far greater at risk are adults and in certain categories children are at risk of course can get the virus but the level of infection and the ability to spread and this is this is not my opinion this is going oh. by Neffet's advice if we go relying on the advice the people who are far greater risk of spreading it getting very sick and clogging okay. up our hospitals are those 300,000 me, and we have that's to be not
1: fair in, that's let not me bring Rose the in the the here C- because C- there's no overnight fixes here but Rose if mm. there was one thing that the government could do in the morning to try and make schools a safer environment what would it be? Um, Stephen Donnelly, Norma Foley and Neffet
5: need to sit down and we need some honesty around this situation and we need some transparency and we need to take what we have learned last year. We need to listen to, to Jim and to the INTO
1: and to come up with the solutions. So, so the Whether first thing they should be, do, the one thing they should do is have a meeting?
5: No, they should sit down and or, and realise the urgency of it because I think this is the problem that they don't realise the urgency of it. There's this kind of stand back approach and we'll see what happens and in the meantime we have teachers and we have the schools left in these situations. And we have parents as well and and other elderly relatives and that that, that the the pupils are going home to and all that. It has to be sorted. Denying it and pretending it doesn't exist and pretending the problems don't uh, happen in the schools is wrong and there's a complete vacuum of information there where the teachers and principals are left without any help. The interface between public health and between the schools has always been a problem and now it's escalating
1: uh, as we have a, Joe obviously uh, you were caught on the hot by this disclosure from the teacher today that antigen is going to be used in schools but I take it your door is open to try and make this work as constructively as possible
8: well we certainly have been uh, calling for a meeting and we would we, we had regular meetings up to recently and we're disappointed we haven't had them uh, prior to this uh, uh, this announcement but certainly we'd be ready for a meeting tomorrow morning um to get the details but it's not just for ourselves Principals themselves and teachers need to know the details so they can communicate with parents so this, when it is rolled out, can be done properly and swiftly.
1: OK, Joe McKeown of the INTO, uh, Rose Conway of Walsh of Sinn Féin, Neil Richmond of Fine Gael. thank you all very much. We're going to leave it there, but lots more after this break because there's joy for travellers as the United States opens its borders to the fully vaccinated. We will hear from both sides of the Atlantic. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, once upon a time, flights from Ireland to the US would take off with no one really paying attention. But as we know, Covid changed the aviation industry and the first flight across the Atlantic was broken again today. And after nearly two years, travellers are once again allowed back into America as long as they are fully vaccinated. And that has led to scenes of excitement today in Dublin Airport and elsewhere across the island. Aer Lingus' chief operating officer says he hopes to see business back as usual very soon. So
3: at the moment, uh, you know, as we head into the Christmas period, we'll be at about 60% of, of where we're at. Uh, today we have four flights to the States. Uh, we have Washington during the week now as well with a further three flights. So a, a steady build of the schedule uh, with plans to get back to practically, uh, you know, 90% of the operation next summer. So that, that's the key focus for us.
1: Let's get a little bit more on this. I'm joined by Skype by Marian McCone, US correspondent at The Business Post and in studio by Gina London, who's an American entrepreneur and the CEO of Language and Leadership. Thank you both for, for joining me this evening. Uh, Marion, can I come to you first? Um, US is a bit of a laggard when it comes to all of this, isn't it? Europe reopened its borders for the travelers, uh, vaccinated travellers in July. Why is it taking Joe Biden so long to follow suit?
2: Uh, I think it's a couple of things, Gavin. Uh, firstly, America takes longer. It, 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 its infrastructure seems to be freakier in terms of bureaucracy. But also there was some resistance, which to me is kind of ironic because the vaccine uptake in the United States is still very, very low uh, compared to Europe. About 58, 59% of Americans are now fully vaccinated. About 150,000 Americans have died from COVID, unvaccinated Americans just since the 1st of June this year. We don't have comparable statistics in Europe. So, And we've been allowing Americans in. So you would wonder why vaccinated Americans, you would wonder why it has changed. T- Taken this long, uh, I think that Biden had been under increasing pressure from his European counterparts, in particular, uh, and also from the uh, tourism industry here, which completely relies on uh, overseas visitors—not completely, but very much. Americans only take an average of ten days' holidays a year, so they really need foreign visitors to fill up Disneyland, to fill up the hotels, to visit the national parks, and to keep the whole thing ticking. Uh, and also the airlines. Uh, Biden and, and has. Had to hand out about $60 billion in subsidies to the American Airlines over uh, since earlier this year. So, you know, the sooner that America opens up, the sooner you can start um, weaning all these things off. So, it, as you say, it was overdue, um, as many things have been this year, and uh, it's finally here now. And I think people in America are relieved and excited as well. You know, these things have a knock-on effect, tourism, small business, Airbnb, all these things have really suffered because of the shutdown.
4: Uh, I have
1: to say, I did not know that Americans only took 10 days leave a year, and that explains why Gina London is living on this side of the Atlantic now and not back where you came from. Um, Gina, thank you for joining us in the studio. You don't have your your baggage with you, at least I don't think, but I I guess you must be excited to get back pretty soon because it's a long time to be locked
7: out of your home country. Well, actually, as an American, I could still travel. So point as long as I had my vaccination and I had okay. my PCR test. So in fact, I actually did go for the first time in two years in August to see my family for more than 10 days. But <laughs> what's exciting now is that, hey, the U.S. is open. If you're OK to stand in long lines, if you're be aware that there's record numbers of violent clashes between passengers and flight attendants, and largely those are 75 percent because of the mask mandate, there's still mandates that are going on for the 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 airlines and for the employees of the airlines, the federal government in the United States is going to be increasing those mandates. Even for government contract workers, it's going to impact the airlines. So if you're ready, even Delta CEO said recently, it's going to be sloppy. And you don't want the CEO of an airline to say that it's sloppy when there's hundreds of billions of dollars of loss Uh... in that industry. And the last thing they want are fatigued flight attendants, fatigued air air pilots who are coming over. And suddenly there's all of this influx of pent up desire to come back to the United States. And now they've got long lines and worse of all, potentially accidents and nobody wants an accident in this situation.
1: So then, do you agree with then Marion's assessment that part of the reason that this is happening so late is, is not because Joe Biden wants the US to be some sort of a hermit nation, but rather because the infrastructure just isn't there to deal
7: with that many people again? Well, why is he ta- why has he been wanting his infrastructure bill passed for so long and, and fa- finally potentially going to get it across the line? But the point is, it's the global gateway to the United States Canada, Mexico, all of Europe weren't allowed in and of course that was put in place by the Trump administration when COVID first stopped started. So finally people can come back. But my question is, if you're gonna be packing the suntan lotion and all of the other things to come and visit Disney World or, or Hawaii during Christmas time, you also better pack a lot of patience because it's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of travel over to the United States right now.
1: Uh, Marion, what has it been like on the ground over in New York? Because ordinarily, if it's a city you go to as a tourist, you, you basically have to queue up all over the place. You can't get to anywhere because of how many people are there. If For those who have been able to travel there, it must have been a pretty idyllic experience because there can't be many queues anywhere.
2: Well, you know, one of the things I have to say is that if you have been in the States and you've been able to travel, it's been wonderful because you can stay in five-star hotels for $100 a night, which you could never do normally in Washington, in New York, in Los Angeles, all these places. As you say, uh, there aren't that many queues. You don't have to queue up, but a lot of things on the other side were closed. A lot of restaurants were very restricted to outdoor dining only. Uh, The numbers were down and it didn't really have the The buzz, that big cities that you that really visitors come for the excitement. You know, Broadway was shut down as well. So you could come to New York, sure, if you wanted to walk in Central Park and you wanted to take the subway and believe that there was nobody else in New York. But, you know, overall, the city has taken such a battering in the last 18 months. I recall at the start of the COVID when really on every the city was entirely deserted. All the sounds were of sirens and these huge refrigerated trucks with bodies in them. So New York has really really suffered. Uh, It's back now. As I say, the theatres are opening. New York feels like it's back now. And and that's a wonderful feeling. But it it took a huge hit on so many levels in the cost of human lives. Businesses, so many businesses have closed. I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. Busy streets like Melrose. Every second shop is shuttered at this stage. So it's going to take a while to come back. And we should also say, and I think what Gina said is exactly right. flight levels will only go up to about 60% this year of what they were in 2019, if that at all. It'll really take until next summer, or indeed 2024, before everything is fully back as it was. And as well, there's a huge rush to hire people now in America in the hospitality industry. A lot of people don't want to go back to those badly paid minimum wage jobs with terrible conditions. So there are a lot of jobs in the hospitality industry which are still lying vacant. So there may be delays because of that as well everything else. So, you know, absolutely right. If you're coming, uh, be patient, be patient. Don't expect everything to be like it was in 2019.
1: The image you portray, Marion, is that it's really all about the almighty dollar. And I wonder, Jean, is that ultimately what's driving this, that if there's still a struggle to get America vaccinated at the same level as Europe, that ultimately the decision has to be taken to reopen for tourists now, because you need to fill the restaurants, you need to fill the theatres. And in a lot of places, it's not going to happen with domestic tourists.
7: Well, the, the, the global highway of economy, of course, is one of the reasons that this is driving it. and federal direct investment on both sides of, of the pond is really important. And of course, you are going to see prices going up for the tickets, for that hospitality, this hotel Tells that you were, that Marion was just talking about, and try, just try to get a rental car right now when you're coming and trying to book your holiday over into the United States because it is absolutely. Outrageous the cost of those are going up because I am actually going back at the holiday time to see oh, my no, family for hotel exactly for no it's it's actually really exp- it's really expensive and we did book it though and my Irish boyfriend though because now he's he's able to he's, able, know, to, he's yeah. able to go which he wouldn't have been in fact if there hadn't have been the easing of those re- of these restrictions so it is a good thing but yes pack plenty of patience well
1: is that though really part of the illustration of what's been so frustrating about this that you've seen the rest of the world albeit with different mandates that it's all been ret- turn to some normality and you want to bring your your partner back to your country, you wanted him to see your family and everything else and just that sense of things not being as normal in America as they were anywhere else.
7: Of course, I mean often you look to the United States to lead on, on, on these types of things, and, and they and they didn't in terms of vaccine uptake, in terms of the the way that they're opening up their country again. And so Europe really has been the leader in all of that. But at a human level, for people who were at the airport here in Dublin today and, and other places around Europe and trying to get back into the United States for the first time to see their family members that they haven't seen for nearly two years, I know what that feels like because I hadn't seen mine until I got back in August. So it is a time to celebrate. It's a time to try to look to the future. But also, as I keep saying, be patient. It's going to be a lot of cues. These stabs are overworked in the airports, and it's up to the airlines to check the covid certificates and to make sure you've had the, the test and to make sure that you've filled out the contact tracing so these people are overworked and they are going to be very so, stressed in the same mental health ways that we've all been stressed throughout this. so it's important your, to remember your that. travel
1: agent hat just before yes. we do wrap up for the night if people aren't up for all those cues and everything else and they want something a little bit more akin to the usual american experience how long do you think it will be before all those things are themselves out and it'll be back to the regular tourist experience.
7: Oh, it's going to take another year. It's going to be 2023 before, 2022, 2023, before we see things feeling more comfortable. The airlines certainly have to do a lot of making up for lost time after they've lost billions and billions of dollars. Uh, Marion, final question to you. In about the 20 seconds we have left, do you think it's going to take that long for things to fully iron
1: out and get back to normal?
2: Yeah. But I think in the meantime, people can, you know, pick when you travel wisely. Don't travel the week after next. It's Thanksgiving. It will be insane. Uh, But I think it's getting back to normal. The world is slowly getting back. We'll, We'll get there eventually.
1: Okay, Marion McCone in New York and Gina London here in Dublin looking forward to her five-star trips back over, possibly not at the same cheapness as they have been for the last little while. Thank you both very much for joining me this evening. And that is all that we have for you tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all the major platforms and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, good night, thank you for watching and take care.